Welcome to CPP Chat, the second podcast for C++ developers by C++ developers. Before we continue, I want to read this week's disclaimer. In the unlikely occurrence that any of our public events have to be canceled or postponed due to circumstances beyond the control of CPP Chat, we cannot be held responsible for any costs incurred by the attentive ND, the event attendee. There may be show photographer present at our event, and by attending, you give us permission to use any general crowd photos you appear in on our website or for marketing purposes. So, uh, with me today is my fellow host and the show's producer, Phil Nash. Phil, uh, do you have any uh, personal CPPCon-related news you want to share with us? CPPCon? Hmm. Um, nothing interesting's happened there recently, has it? Oh, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after a marathon uh, week of um, your uh, uh, review committee, or core team, crack team, uh, deciding <laughs> on the, the final schedule, it, it emerged that uh, I had uh, one and a half talks accepted. So thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the half is because I'm doing one uh, joint with uh, Simon Brand. Right. I also have the workshop as well. It's not that it was half accepted. It was that it was a, a, a joint talk. <laughs> yes. Um. Yes, I got the impression by looking at the uh, uh, CPPCon uh, chat group that everyone was hitting their uh, mail buttons about every 30 seconds to see if we'd sent out announcements yet. Uh, that's a little nerve-wracking for us as well, because we really are working as fast as we can to, uh, to come, up with the, uh, come up with the list, right? <laughs> um, in addition... Uh, joining this week, this week is uh, Jonathan Beccaro. Jonathan is the author of the Fluent C++ blog, and uh, his talk, 105 STL Algorithms in Less Than an Hour, has also been accepted as part of uh, this year's CPPCon program. Uh, Jonathan, are you excited to be speaking at CPPCon? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That will be my uh, first uh, talk at CPPCon. And, uh... Not your first conference talk. No, not my first conference talk, no. Um, and yeah, I'm excited about the topic, about talk, talking about the STL algorithm, which are a fantastic, fascinating topic. <laughs> and so, yeah, we'll try to get them all done in, uh, in an hour so that we uh, actually learn them and, uh, once and for all, hopefully. Well, I have had people, quite a few people actually come to me and say that after listening to, to Sean's talk, suddenly realized that they didn't know the algorithms as well as they should. They didn't know. Sometimes uh, you, you can't tell from the name, like rotate. What the heck does that actually do? Does that spin all my integers? I don't know what that means, right? Yeah. And um, so you're going to have a chance to, uh, <laughs> chance to set people straight on that. Um, right. So uh, also joining us this week is Kate Gregory. Uh, Kate is well known in our community as an author and speaker. Um, Kate's talk... What do you mean when we say nothing at all has just been accepted as part of the main program? And her talk, Simplicity, Not Just for Beginners, is going to be a keynote. And as part of the agreement uh, to be a keynote, uh, she has agreed to be on CPP Chat as well. It was kind of, you know, uh, one of those riders on the contract. You can't be a keynote unless you come and join us on the show, and we're going to beat you up on the show, right? <laughs> so have you regretted that, Kate? Uh, I regret nothing. Je ne regret de rien. That's no, I'm good. <laughs> well, this is not your first time at CPPCon, or not not your first time speaking at CPPCon. No, uh, everyone it, except the year I was too sick, but my first keynote, yes. so I'm pretty excited. Yes, and yeah. I have to yeah. lengthen my talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, you know, um, 
why adding more stuff couldn't possibly compromise uh, simplicity, right? <laughs> well, uh, we have been known to add more stuff to make it simpler. That'll be okay. Um, okay. But actually, my main problem with that talk in uh, in the past has been managing to fit it into an hour. So uh, the idea to kind of stretch my wings a little bit and uh, be more opinionated, uh, that's that works for me. Yeah. And this is this is a point that that I've often made about the challenge that the standards committee has is that everyone recognizes that one of the biggest problems with C++ is it is so complicated, but the committee can't take things away because then they break code. So the committee has to think about clever ways to add things that simplify. And I think they have a pretty good track record of having done exactly that. They, they add things like, uh, you know, range-based for loops or auto or something like that, which actually makes the language simpler and easier to use, even though the number of pages in the, in the standard goes up. Um, uh, but, but, but I think that's, uh, yeah, adding, adding things to make things simpler is, is a challenge. And that's what the committee's committee's faced with doing. So yeah, that's their um, role they're stuck with. So I think we're going to talk some about simplicity, but before we get there, I think we've got some, uh, some stuff going on we should talk about. Uh, for people who haven't uh, who haven't watched it or listened to it yet, I should say the CPP cast guest this week is Michael Case, and um, of course I've been teasing him and giving him a lot of grief about being on that show, and he hasn't been on this show in many months. Um, but <laughs> but I'm glad he he got to be on that show. Uh, I thought and I thought it was a great interview. I thought it went really well, and he talked about um, several things that are uh, important to him. And talked a little bit about embedded, which I know is, is I think, a very interesting area for C++ because we're so underutilized. There's so much stuff you could do in embedded better by using C++ rather than C, and it's just not not well appreciated. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, let's see. The other thing that, that has uh, come out this week is uh, Herb's trip report. It was one of the later trip reports, but he said that he deliberately delays his trip reports until after the mailing so that people can, in fact, uh, see links to the papers if they want to. Um, and there was uh, one of the big things that he highlighted, in fact, the big thing, he said that the biggest thing that's gone into the standard so far, the thing that's going to have the most impact on people is what we talked about uh, in our previous episode, which was contracts. And he also links that to something else that we've talked about before, which is um, static exceptions, or he didn't refer to as static exceptions, but a new way of doing error handling. And this, to me, is a huge, huge change. And I said this on the previous show, that if, if we could fix some of the issues related to exceptions, right now, I think exceptions are the right thing to do in 95% of C++ code. But if you want to write a library that you want to be usable in that other 5%, then you're kind of tied. It's like, well, do, does my library going to use exceptions or not? And that's that that's a challenge for us. And if we could address that huge win, and I think Herb is pushing hard um, to make some of that stuff happen. It's not going to happen by 20, but, um, but anyway, so read the trip report. If you're interested in that, what else did he talk about? He talked about, um, this was just one line in there, but I thought it was significant. And that is um, that there's a statement on standard library compatibility that Titus's group um, and uh, if you want to know more about this, then again, CPPcast had Titus on to talk about this last week. Um, and he was talking about the new library group. All right, I'm sorry. Um, study group. 
the new study yeah. group. Well, actually, that was That's for tooling. Group. I guess this is not related to the tooling one, but but this is Titus's uh, other group, which is the um, uh, the library group, and they've put out a standard um, document on on trying to define what you can and cannot do with the standard library. And I think that's really important because the standard calls things out in a few places, but it's not pulled together. It just says, well, you can't add this to the standard, to the STD namespace and things like that, and you can't make these assumptions. And I think it would be better if there was a standalone document that says this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Um, So I thought that was interesting. Is there anything else in that trip report that I missed that I should have called out? Anything controversial in there? I have not had a chance to read it yet, so Ah. I uh, I don't have any more to say. Herb is being very diplomatic in that, I think. Uh, he missed the opportunity to call the standard, the new error handling Herbceptions like everyone else is. <laughs> oh, ho, ho, ho. I hadn't heard that yet, but, uh, but I guess that's, uh, uh, well, he had, he didn't really invent them, but he has, he's embraced them and, and pushing them forward. And I think yeah. that's, uh, if they happen, I'm willing to call them whatever Whatever people want to call them, I like calling them static exceptions. But I'll call them whatever they want to call them if if the uh, if if it's done right. There's still some I, opportunities to screw it up. But but what I've seen so far, I'm happy about. I think the combination of contracts and static exceptions will take care of so much of of the trouble that we run into, and then you can have uh, predictability, right? In in performance, because for a lot of people, it's not even about fast or slow. It's about knowing when it's going to be fast and when it's going to be slow. Yeah. It'll be good. In fact, if you if you watch my C plus plus now talk, I I go into this in in some detail. Actually, weigh up all the different approaches to error handling uh, on a eight point scale, I think, and show how they they just come out with top marks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, what else is happening around the world? Um... Uh, I guess uh, Pacific C++, the, uh, the tickets are available and an official speaker announcement next week. So we have a little bit of a promise coming out there. Uh, CppCon, a lot of stuff has been happening. I've been crazy in the last couple of weeks. Um, we announced plenaries, uh, maybe a couple of them, not a big surprise, Herb and uh, Bjarne. Um, but um, two other others... Not also not necessarily huge surprises, but Kate, who has spoken at CppCon before and is one of our popular speakers, and Chandler, who's who is certainly one of our popular speakers, also spoken at at CppCon before and has been a plenary before, is going to be talking about Spectre, and this is of course a completely new con a new topic for us because I'm not sure when Spectre was originally published, but it wasn't it wasn't before the last conference, so um, this is a new area for us. And we haven't had a lot of security stuff at the conference, but we're that's going to be kind of a mini theme. There's not a lot of sessions on it, but we have uh, we're we're we have some security sessions, and um, and the Spectre talk is actually going to be Chandler's talk will be followed. He'll get his full plenary talk, but then after that, we're going to have a plenary panel uh, to address uh, to address to for, to follow up on what is being done and. Um, I'm not going to announce any particular names, but the uh, the people who are going to be on the panel with Chandler represent, let's say they represent op- uh, operating systems that are used by uh, most of us, and um, and um, so it's it's so it's it's being taken very seriously, and Chandler is able to get get the right players to, to be on the panel, and so I'm really excited about that. Chandler will be on the panel, and then Matt has agreed to. Um, Matt Godbolt is going to 
uh, moderate the panel for us. So it's going to be it's going to be pretty good. Um, so, but those weren't big surprises, I think. But their big surprise was the one we announced on Thursday. That's Mark Elmt. Hope I got that name right. And um, most people in our community haven't heard of him, but he is uh, responsible for a piece of software called Houdini. And again, most people in our in our community haven't heard of Houdini, but I guarantee you everyone has seen the result of Houdini because it's a tool used by the movie industry. And um, Mark Mark said that every movie in the last 10 years that that won an Academy Award for visual effects has used Houdini. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's very important in that industry. And he, when he won the Academy Award, he actually did a call out to WG21, which he actually referred to as WG21, which was like, does anybody actually call it that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know people who have been C++ programmers for a very long time, and they wouldn't know what that meant. They would just call it, you know, the ISO committee or the standards committee or something like that. But he called him WG21, and he, and he thanked him for C++11. And uh, so this was cool. This was absolutely really cool. And I'm expecting that he'll have some great video clips. But, of course, you know, hearing uh, hearing about the uh, performance challenges of software like that, very exciting. Um, and then, so those were, we were releasing those all week. And then uh, that was, we we're trying to build to um, the big deadline, which is actually tomorrow. You have until tomorrow to do early bird registration deadline for CPPCon. And in fact, we have gotten a huge response. There's been a lot of registrations in the last exit. Well, over the last week, just a huge number of responses, right? And we've still got, um, if you're watching this live or if you, uh, you've still got until tomorrow night to go ahead and register. Uh, and then yesterday, the announcement yesterday was just a goodie. And that is the video. Um, there's a promo video that we have every year, and I thought this year's was probably the best we've done. And I'm really excited. I should say we done. I don't get any credit for it. It was uh, Mark Basham who does the, our recording for all of CPPCon, and also now he does it for C++ Now. Um, uh, and he, he put out the promo video, which features Kate. And Matt. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people, actually. I probably recognize 10 people in the video. Yeah. Um and yeah. lots of happy crowds. Yeah. Lots of happy crowds. Yeah, it, it captures a little bit about the size. There's a lot of people. Um, yeah, Scott does some of the voice. Um, Matt, as you said. Um, and then there's shots of Herb and Nico and uh, Bjarne signing books and all sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm hoping that it gives some feeling for why. It's not just the sessions. It's not just, you can't just sit home and watch the videos and say, oh, uh, why did I need to go? It's the same uh, same as watching the YouTube videos. It's not quite the same experience. Definitely. And and the venue, you know, like people are out on the balcony or people are milling around looking down at other levels. I think it's it's uh, makes you feel more connected to other people. Yeah, clearly. I think that it's true for a lot of conferences. Like going there is actually valuable, valuable in itself. Um, that watching videos is interesting, but going there is... Uh, it's different, really, and I think people should at least try it once to go somewhere to see how it feels and how different it is from watching videos. Yeah. Well, the opportunity to speak to the other attendees, I mean, that's what you're... To me, that's what the conference is really about. It's about the people who are getting together. Yeah. 
And also, when can you find like three or five days in a row when you can spend all day watching uh, videos about C++? That doesn't happen. Right. And then talking to other people about them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> actually discussing the talk. So it works like both, both ways. They feed into each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. What I think is amazing is we have so many C++ conferences now that I can't go to them all. And, you know, five years ago, I probably could have, but not anymore. Yeah, that is a that is a huge change. Uh, most of them in Europe. We don't have a lot more in the U.S. Um, we do have a couple in Asia because we have Pacific and then the, and then um, the one in, in China, which you were at the one in China. You were the keynote was, speaker was... in Beijing. I was there, uh, C++ Summit, it's called, uh -huh. uh, and I had a very good time, uh, not just mm -hmm. from being in China, but actually just like the, it was actually a real conference and people asked questions and it was pleasant. I enjoyed it. It was uh, do you remember an eye opener. What the, do you remember what the turnout was? Um, it, it was uh, hundreds. Yeah. And there was, there was uh, other tracks, so I didn't necessarily see all the people all the time. There was like a Chinese tracks and English tracks. Uh, where English tracks were still being translated to Chinese, but um, the uh, the attendees were interested. The material was relevant to them. The questions were good, so I was I was happy to have gone. Awesome. Yeah. Right. Plus, that was in China. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, most of the most of the new conferences are in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of regional conferences in Europe, and and like national conferences that are that are shorter one or two day conferences or something like that. And then there's some, some bigger ones, um, including um, a new one that's uh, coming in February. That's right. I don't know if anyone's heard about this one, but <laughs> it's called C++ on C, run by myself, of course. And just to remind everyone, the call for speakers is, is still open till the end of July, which is only three and a half weeks away. So now is a great time now that um, all the panic over whether you're going to get a talk accepted at CppCon is over. Now's right. a great time to actually get your submission in for C++ on C. I expect that inbox to be full Monday morning. So <laughs> we, we did announce uh, back to, we haven't announced publicly, but we've announced back to the individual submitters whether their submissions were accepted or not. We were about four days late on that. But, um, but there has been a lot of discussion of that. We will, in the very near future, actually have a list of all the sessions. We won't have a schedule because that, takes a lot more time to put together. But we will have a list of which sessions are accepted. And the reason we have to have that is because uh, we want people like Jonathan and Kate and Phil to look over that and help us with the schedule by identifying other talks and say, well, that's similar to mine. Don't schedule it at the same time. Or, you know, that's kind of good background for mine. Schedule that one before mine. So we try as much as possible to put some sanity into the schedule um, that way. And with the number of talks that we're talking about, and it is over 120 talks, it's really hard to look at every talk and think about all the other talks. The best way to do that is to outsource that to the, to the speakers themselves and let them look at the other talks and say, this is related to mine. It shouldn't be at the same time or whatever. So that list will go up along with a plea out to all the accepted submitters to please look at that and think about their own talk in that context so that they can give us the feedback that says um, they're helping the scheduling. And then there's always the um, people who can't, um, can't attend, uh, have to fly in early, 
fly in late or have to leave early. Um, and so they, you know, we need to get that information back as well. So that in theory, once we publish the schedule, it doesn't get a lot of tweaking. That's the goal. Um, when, when the schedule comes out, we don't want to have to make a lot of changes. We want it to be right. That's never the actual case, but that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Were those notifications really only four days late? Felt like an eternity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I cheated because on Sunday when I realized, well, there's no way, we're not even close, um, I, well, I went into the timeline and I extended the timeline out by another two days. So I gave myself till Tuesday. But then on Tuesday night, it was also clear that we weren't going to make it. I said, well, it's fine. It'll at least go out on 4th of July. That's a holiday. It hardly counts as being late. And then when we got to the end of the 4th of July, it was like, oh, there's still a few questions that we have to decide. And so it actually went out sometime during the day on Thursday. Um, and I suppose if you were in England, it was probably closer to the end of the day on Thursday. So it probably felt like an eternity to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're we're um, trying to work out which territory was in the time zone furthest west. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to put people uh-huh. through that. But, um, but I, I will say, you know, it's, it's because we weren't doing this casually. We were doing an awful lot of looking at each individual and we looked most closely at the ones that we were saying no to, you know, is there any way this, um, you know, this shouldn't, should be accepted. And in some cases, part of the delay was because we were thinking, could we, could we approach this proposer, this submitter and ask for a change that would make this closer to what we're looking for? And, you know, we take that sort of thing very seriously because our goal is make the best possible content for the attendees and um it's it's not um it's it's not to necessarily reward people for great submissions or something like that that's not the point the point is um to to get the best possible content and so that's that's what we're trying to do and it takes a long time Particularly since you'd think, well, why don't we just start early? Well, keep in mind, all these submissions, I shouldn't say all, but almost all these submissions uh-huh. come in right at the deadline. <laughs> and um, it would sure help if people would submit uh, their talks within a week of our announcing the, the talks. And then we would have a lot more time to uh, to look at them and say, you know, this would be a better talk if it was like this. And then we could get back to the submitter. But it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so it's, it's still... Um, that's if you're hearing this, you still have a chance to write your ways for C++ right. on C. <laughs> Get right. your submissions in early. Or if you're excited about having been accepted and you think, gosh, maybe I could do it again, um, talk to Phil about that as well. Definitely. Um, I really like the way that we, we come back now and say, could you change this? Because I think all of us have had something rejected with a note that says, oh, you know, the first half of this is, would be an hour talk on its own, and I would accept that, but because this person put these other bullets in their outline, I'm, <laughs> I'm rejecting this talk. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like a knife, you know? Like, I can handle, we're not interested in your opinion on that thing because it's not important to anyone, but it's like, oh, like, if you'd have asked me, I would have, I would have made that change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, well, I was just, I was just mentioning before, before the show started, I'm thinking about a blog on... Um, so you want to be a conference speaker to to tell people about about the best way to get accepted at a conference and and one of the things is submit early you know I was joking about everybody submits at the last minute, but that's really true and submitting early is a is a good way of 
I'm not guaranteeing that when somebody's going to look at it and say, oh, we'd certainly accept this if you change the title in the first two bullet points. But that could happen. You know, you could get the kind of feedback that would make it um, a little more palatable. So there's things I want to talk about and, and, and kind of coach people and say. And one of the things I want to say is that if you compare the quality of the typical slash average submission from 2014 to now, the quality has gone way up. And part of that, I think, is because submitters have some experience and they do a better job. But I think it's also because people are watching the videos and and seeing what's expected of them. You know, it's kind of like when you see how it's done and you realize, oh, I could do it that way. And you learn what's expected. And so the average quality of the submission has gone way up. And that doesn't make it any easier for us. It does in a sense because we love having high-quality submissions. But but it means that um, it used to be that, you know, if, if people didn't write a very good abstract, it was easy to say, well, you know. But if everybody starts writing better abstracts, well, it's good for everybody. But it also makes it harder for us to distinguish the, you know, the good ones from the really good ones. And so that's part of the challenge. Welcome to this world, uh, Phil. You're going <laughs> to <laughs> you've got some tough decisions ahead of you, I can assure you. Oh yeah. I'm sure. But I think it's I think it's going to be a good problem to have. Yeah, it's 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 nice. It I always tell people that, you know, I cry myself to sleep when we when we when we do this every year because it is. I mean, we say no to people who have given good talks before. We say no to stuff that's of an interesting subject area. It just isn't room for everything. And and it's just getting, as I say, the the bar is getting higher and higher. So we're rejecting better and better talks every year. So um so let's talk a little bit about simplicity, because this is something that uh is gonna be Kate's keynote, but Phil has also talked about that and it's kind of one of the themes of uh of Jonathan's blog, right? Yeah, absolutely. You wanna kick us off, Kate, and tell us about what your keynote's gonna be? <laughs> well, the parts I haven't written. Um, <laughs> well, let's focus on the parts you have written. How about that? <laughs> well, how about this? We'll start with the title. You know, when we when we teach people C plus plus, we often leave all kinds of things out to keep it simple because you're just a beginner. And so we're like, well, we won't do any error checking, and we won't do any this, and we won't do any that because we're just trying to be simple. And uh, so when I advocate for simplicity. You know, sometimes people think that's what I'm advocating for, and I'm advocating for an entirely different kind of simplicity that has nothing to do with, let's not bother cluttering this thing up with some tests, right? Um, I'm talking about code that uh, is, uh, one word I often like to use is transparent. When you look at it, you know exactly what it does. It couldn't do anything other than what it does. So it doesn't take long to read a five or ten line loop and, and determine that it's being some kind of sort or that it's trying to select all the odd entries or whatever. But, you know, when you call a function that's spelled S-O-R-T, everybody knows that this is, is sorting. And when you call a function that's F-I-N-D, everybody knows that this is finding. And that's a different kind of simplicity, right? Um, because it's about being really open and really obvious. And uh, it's actually incredibly hard to do. So I decided I was going to start talking about not only why to do it, which I've been doing for a while, but also how. But what I really liked about, because uh, you, you've done not exactly the same talk, but a uh, very similar talk already, but I was recently watching the uh, ACCU edition. What I really liked about it was, it was it was very different from my own talk on simplicity. Yes. But not in a way that, you know, one of us is right, one of us is wrong. 
or that we're even talking about completely different things. So you're really picking up the um, the more practical side of things. You know what you're actually going to do in your real code day to day, specifically, that makes it simpler. Whereas my talk was much more uh, broad strokes, um, dare I say, even a little bit academic in places, which I think is also important. But I only sort of get down to some of the nuts and bolts uh, towards the end. So I thought that made like a really nice uh, continuum. So that's why I thought it'd be great for us to to both discuss this on the show as well. Well, I liked about Kate's talk, if I may give my opinion on that yeah. too, because I uh, was lucky to actually attend it back at ACC last year, or well, this year. Um, is the difference she makes about simple, as in like uh, understandable and elegant, and simple as in I didn't think that through, right? And she yes. explains about whether limits is and i think that's a very uh, important question it actually requires a fair amount of bravery yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but that, that particular point actually stood out to me as well because in in my uh, in my talk i talk about uh, accidental complexity versus uh, inherent complexity and so you have a certain amount of inherent complexity in, in any given system or, or project and that would include all of the the error handling and but those parts we, we tend to leave out when we're just you know, showing a uh, so-called simple demo. But they really are an important part of a, of a real project. You can't leave them out. What we want to leave out is the accidental complexity, the stuff that's not actually necessary in order to, to achieve whatever our goal is. So it's is, two, two different ways of looking at the same thing. Is that like when you've over-engineered your logging system, and so you know you really only need a simple logging system, but you've actually set six different levels of logability, and uh, and yes. you have uh, all sorts of different, you know, you just created all this needless complexity instead of just saying, look, um, let's just let's just build what we actually need. Is that what you mean by that? That that's definitely a good example of uh, gold plating, which is uh, accidental complexity, but it can be on a much smaller scale as well, just just down to you know, uh, a single function. So it's a great example is in, in uh, Kate's talk, actually, where you just slightly change the way that you, you write the code and suddenly the intent drops out. It's just there in front of you. You can't miss it. Whereas before you had to hunt for it in the code. And it might only be a few lines of code uh, difference, but you had to think about it. You had to think about bringing that intent out and making sure that, um, that there's no extra uh, cognitive friction in, in finding it rather than necessarily extra um, features as such. Mm-hmm. And is a, um, accidental complexity also happening when you don't really have the big picture when you try to add something to the code and then you patch up something and it doesn't really fit? And that's Yeah, it accidental grows because... organically. Yeah. 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 I have a code base that I worked on that once upon a time there was a report. So you would bring up the report. Right. And then, uh, you know, it had the usual, you'll get set up the headers and set up the footers and blah, blah, and all the stuff you do when you're writing a report. And then they added like a second report and it was mostly the same. So they just kept the function the same, but then there's like, you know, an if report type equals this for five (laughs) or 10 lines. Right. Well, then, you know what happens? They add a third report. So now there's a switch. And today the switch statement is thousands of lines long in a function that is, I think the function is six or 7,000 lines long. The file's 15,000 lines long. So you'll be on Skype and the guy will be like, so as you can see on line 9,732, <laughs> and we're all you know, going to that line number. 
How, how much how much time did it take to to go from the five line function to the the behemoth in the code? Decades. Okay. Decades. Yeah. And so and that, that's what how long I, it took to understand it as well. <laughs> well, I honestly did write a twenty seven step process for how to add a new report. There are it's a simple twenty seven step procedure. Um, <laughs> it's just like so awful and so uh how do you fix that you know i mean if it had all been virtual functions life would be so much better but it's not and there's these there's all these switch statements there are there are there are functions called like um i don't know can sort let's say and there's a switch and it's like case half the report numbers return true and then the other half of the report <laughs> numbers return false <laughs> so, so. and like i don't know when they should have made the switch maybe 10 reports like it was probably okay when they were at two or three but they probably right. should have made the switch at about 10 but like if you just it's your job to add the 11th report today are you going to re-architect everything or are you going to add the 11th report so you can go home right and right. and well part uh, of that is a cultural question because hmm. is is your culture that we get the code right or is it your your culture that we get the code done and if if you know that you're expected to get the 11th report done by the end of this afternoon, then that's what you're going to do. But if, if you can say to your manager or to the rest of the team, look, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take the bullet here and, and re-architect the report mechanism because we're, you know, clearly going to have more reports and it's going to be worth it in the long run. That's a cultural issue, right? It, it's, it's right. not a technical issue because as you said, when was the right time to make the change? Well, in a sense, from a technical point of view, it doesn't matter. The, the real question is, when was the cultural time? When was it um, that, that people would say, yeah, let's, let's bite the bullet because it's more important to get the code right than it is to get it said, done? Um, and a lot of this code was written at a time when we did not know how long our code was going to live. You know, like the reason there was a Y2K problem was that in the 70s and 80s, we didn't think our code would last until the year 2000. And, you That's know, 20 years away. <laughs> Are you exactly. crazy? That's not going to happen. <laughs> and so this is like an MFC app. I don't know when it was born, probably in the 80s or 90s, you know, and it's a very good app. It makes a lot of people a lot of money. And the, I don't think it was written to last as long as it has lasted. Mm-hmm. So we we will never learn the lesson of please make it so it can last thirty years, um, but we can always try to keep teaching it anyway. There's an interesting tension here though, um, because um, you also don't want to overgeneralize or try to yes um, make things too robust against future decisions too early. So the trick is more to keep the the code sort of malleable and dare I say agile. <laughs> which is really the whole point yeah I'm, I'm somewhat of a victim of that i'm the one who's going to sit down there and write a logging system that has eight different levels of logging that's just uh you know well in the future you might need that well <laughs> I, don't know. I guess the brilliance is to try to come up with an interface that is modifiable in, in a in an easy way but not try to do all that modification right now um about that sort of um features that grow exponentially like that switch that that I grow so much. Um, I, I think there's a reality check to make in some cases because if you have one such function, then yeah, you can you can have a culture about making code right uh, to make future things easier. But if you have got like twenty of them, 
and you need to do bug fixes in all of them, there's just no way in some cases that you can fix them all. And then you have to pick your battles and, and some of those big switch is just going to patch up a few, uh, an 11th case and, uh, and be done with it because there's only 24 hours in a day, you know? Well, it, I did, I think, fix this report problem, but the switch remains. What I did was I made it different for new reports going forward. So the old reports are tested and accepted. Everyone's happy with them. And uh, I'm not going to go in and try to change all that and try to copy and paste all that code out. Um, especially since, as you know, with the scope, right, if you want to use a variable inside a switch, it's usually declared before it. And so uh, honestly, pulling anything out of the middle of a switch is generally very painful. So that Why? all stays. But, you know, we're going to do it different going forward. And uh, if you end up dropping certain reports out of the product, then we can strip out the code and, and someday we'll be nicer. Um, other times you get the chance to do it all over again when you're doing a port. Mm -hmm. So there was another product I was involved with, which is an MFC app, and they didn't want an MFC app anymore, but they wanted all their C++ logic. And so uh, we built um, a WPF front end and a pure C++ back end, and all of the old code ended up in the back end. Um, and it got a lot simpler because we only kept the parts you know, that were directly useful to making the calculations. So, you know, the big ports still do happen, and, and that is a good chance to throw away a lot of garbage. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, worked, I, I worked on a very old app where they had a new hire who came in and was trying to understand the graphics code. Um, and it was actually a, it's hard to imagine, uh, the app would, would generate reports and things like that. So when we say graphics, they were not like, game graphics or something like that. They were instead uh, the kinds of graphics you might expect in an enhanced uh, enhanced reports. And because of the nature of this, they had been added on a little bit here. Oh, we're going to add this, we're going to add this, we're going to add this. And so the the design was, the word design shouldn't really be applied to it. It's kind of generous to even say it had a design. Hmm. And so he went through and rewrote all of it. And he was so pleased with himself. He, he made sure everybody knew that his net productivity that week was negative 10,000 lines of code or something like that <laughs> because it cleaned everything up so much. Um, and one of the, uh, a couple of bugs came out of it because it wasn't clear what was meant by certain things. Um, it, what is a double overline? It, it, he didn't understand what a double overline was. Well, it turns out when you're, when you're totaling um, a list of numbers in a, in an um, in a in an accounting format, you will double underline something, but the in, be right before a total. But the problem is, you don't necessarily know if it's a database extract, which is this would be. You won't necessarily know what the last item that you're totaling up is. So you can't say that it's a double mm. underline. Instead, you pick the value below the total, and you say this is going to be double overlined. Mm -hmm. And and that's what that meant. But it wasn't at all clear. There was no comments in the code or anything like that. <laughs> and so what he did was he essentially did the equivalent of an overline except higher up, which is not what you need. You want really the whole cell double underlined. Uh, it was an easy bug to fix. But I just thought it was funny because uh, because that bug got reported. And it was like, what is this? Well, it's because he completely rewrote the code. And um, and it was a huge – it really was a huge win. It was It was a little faster. Performance wasn't the main thing. It was just much easier to maintain after that because it – it finally had a design, right? um, but somebody again. It was a, It was a, the reason he got away with it. It was in part because he was he was a fairly senior engineer, but he was a new hire on the team, so he didn't have any real responsibilities yet. 
And so he was given some bugs. Can you fix some of this bugs in the graphic stuff? And he looked at that and said, screw this. I'm, I'm going to rewrite the whole thing. And, you know, as I said, it, 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 it was something that people who had been there had just kind of lived with and knew, well, yeah, it's the graphics logic. Um, but he was basically going to say, no, this isn't acceptable. And he just, he took, I don't know, it took him better part of a week probably but as a new hire nobody really cared what he was working on so right, right. <laughs> so he did it uh, and he, you know it was a great way of introducing himself to the team saying well uh, you can count on me writing negative 10,000 lines of code if you want <laughs> <laughs> in in my team what we do sometimes is that when we find a piece of code that slows us down for any reason like it's too complicated or whatever we put a cross next to it and then if someone else passes by that same places and has the same problem, he puts another cross and so on. So some places got get a lot of crosses. And then when we decide to do some cleaning, we pick the ones that are the most annoying for most people so that we know we can't fix everything because we have to move on. But we know where the hot places are. So I think we have to pick our battles somehow. I mean, that's just a way to do it. I'm sure there are plenty of other ways. But I mean, yeah, you have to be selective to be efficient that's an interesting approach you you put that in the comments you just have a comment that says i vote that we re refactor this one absolutely and then we've got a ci job that passes the code line and and brings up everything about those comments i like that because you definitely only want to work on the hot stuff if there's a a section that no one's been near for a long time that no one has to read that no one has to understand just just leave it but if there's something there where people are constantly going in there, uh, five minutes every time, if it happens once a month, is going to add up to enough time for you to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons I don't recommend like mechanical tools, you know, global search and replace or, or any kind of automated like, hey, let's change all your loops to ranged fours or what have you, because um, maybe you don't care about half of those. And let's right. focus on the half you care about. Yeah. I wonder if um, if we actually need to rewind it a little bit because we, we seem to have fallen into talking about how to clean up existing code, legacy code, you might mm-hmm. say, which is a really important subject, of course. Um, but we need to obviously be um, going in a particular direction. Uh, in the context of simplicity, we, we sort of need to know what simplicity is first. In other words, if we we're starting the code from scratch, what would we be doing? Yes. Rather than, as somebody on the chat said, you know, we're... Um, Rather than getting rid of the garbage, don't make the garbage in the first place. Um, <laughs> if we can't do that, then digging us, ourselves out of the problem is going to be uh, much harder, I think. So uh, maybe we should start from what, what does simple code look like to begin with? Uh, Kate was touching on it a bit earlier. Uh, so I just wanted to add one of the points from, from my talk, which is um, actually originally from a talk by uh, Rich Hickey. A lot of people have seen that. Uh, simple made easy. Highly recommend watching it where he defines the word simple based on its etymology as being um, a single braid or a single sort of crossing over, as opposed to um, complex being um, many braids. So if you you picture things being woven together, it's those interconnections that makes things complex. So in terms of code, when you're looking at any line of code, the number of other parts of the code base you have to keep in mind at the same time in order to understand what it does is the measure of its complexity. If you can reason about that code on its own, it is uh, simple. So um, striving for simple code by that metric means striving for code you can reason about in, in relative isolation. And I found that that's 
really served me well in, in trying to identify how to make code uh, simpler or where the inherent complexity actually is. And it also led to Turnipro techniques. So it measures uh, complexity regarding the coupling then? Uh, not, not the copying. Um, if you... No, he said coupling. Yeah, coupling. Oh, cu coupling, yeah. sorry, yes. Coupling, absolutely. But coupling, not necessarily, um, we often think of coupling you know, between classes, for example, but coupling between um, you know, any line of code and any other line of code, either right. at runtime or at compile time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, you know, works on several levels. The, a similar thing with the idea of only one is, you know, if you have a change, if you have, say, two overloads of a function, and then the real world changes like the sales tax rules change or something, you have to go and change both overloads in order to accommodate that change. But maybe if you had written that function as a template or with a default value for one of its parameters or something, you might be in a position where there's only one function and therefore you only have to make a change in one place. And that's the sort of thing that saves you from those weird bugs because someone changed four of the five overloads. And so you can't figure out why the bug is happening. Um, trying to keep things to only one, whether it's only one change that you have to make or whether it's only one thing that you have to keep in your head, that's what's going to lead you in the correct direction. Are you, um, do you think about, about the particular example of overloads, um, do you then think that it's better to have default arguments than overloads? It depends what the difference is between the overloads. So if you have, um, uh, I don't know, we were talking about sales tax. Uh, maybe the, the sales tax percentage is a parameter, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the special version of the function for the places that you don't charge sales tax to. Well, right. I think it makes a lot more sense than to have a default value of zero for the sales tax percentage. And like people, they actually feel sorry for the computer, like, but you're wasting its time multiplying by one or adding zero or whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> Poor computer. Like, Suck it up, computer. I'm just going to. So, um, you know, there where that's obvious right now. Uh, I don't want it if you have like two completely unrelated overloads, really one that goes and looks in the database and one that, I don't know, reads a file, like they have nothing in common. You can't just use a default uh, parameter to, to put their commonality back together. But other than that, uh, where that's the only difference is that there's some variable X uh, that appears in one of the functions and in the other, it doesn't. And so by defaulting it to zero or one or what have you, you can have the same code. Yeah, I do prefer that. All right. Uh, someone on the chat was just saying about the this definition of simplicity. Isn't that just functional programming? No state, no mutation. The talk that I was um, referring to earlier, I do actually lead on to that point. But actually, functional programming is just one technique or one approach that will will help in this um, uh, this this quest towards simplicity. Uh, and I also find that uh, TDD is another really useful technique that um, that can help us to to achieve simpler code because it allows us to, to concentrate on, on one thing at a time, do the thing that works, and then in a separate step, actually clean it up and consider all the principles that allow us to you know, decouple things and, and keep things clean. So, and by TDD, you mean? Test-driven development. That there might be a one or two day um, course on it after CPPCon. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, here's another really simple example, no pun intended. Uh, when you have crummy variable names and then there's a comment that tells you what the variable is, then that's a coupling between the variable <laughs> and the comment. You have to hold like what it, every time you see the weirdly named thing in the loop, you have to remember, oh yeah, that's just the running total. And if the darn thing was called running total, 
you know, not only could the comet go away, but that mental, that cognitive burden of remembering would go away. Once you have this idea of simplicity being, or complexity being the, the interweaving of things that shouldn't be interweaved, um, you, you just start to see it everywhere at all, all sorts of different levels. And another thing I really like from Rich Hickey's talk is he uh, is it resurrects his old English word, uh, complect, to specifically take on this meaning of, you know, weaving things together that shouldn't be woven together. It's that this accidental complexity that we, that we add, we, we complicate things unnecessarily. Um, and you can say, you know, very precisely, I've complected this thing with this thing. Uh, and when you have that, that language available to you, it really opens up lots of uh, opportunities to talk about things where before you just said, oh, there's a code smell or you know, something more vague. Mm. Uh, I find that really useful. About um, a function I'm programming to uh, limit coupling, um, obviously there's, uh, there's an interest here because it prevents side effects. But I don't think that's... Uh, um, magic silver bullet against coupling because you can think of a sim simple example uh, no pun intended either um, where you've got a function that produces a bizarre output like something a bit crude that has like a, something you need to know about it and then another, another function picks it up and has to know about that weird thing that's in the output then there's coupling between those two functions even though there's no side effect so functional programming certainly helps, but it's not just a guarantee that you wouldn't have any coupling. There, there are no silver bullets. You can quote me on that. I don't think anyone said it before. No, no <laughs> No, functional programming is not a panacea. That's why I say it's a really useful technique um, that, that does help us to, um, to achieve this, this uh, simplicity in a lot of cases. But it's not the only one, and it's, it's not, not always going to, to help us. Uh, that, that's why I brought uh, TDD into it as well, and there are other techniques and just general good design principles are, are what we're aiming for uh, and in fact that's what tdd really helps us with it helps us to uh, to stick to those design principles even though they're actually quite hard to to adhere to most of the time but uh, tdd sort of, of makes that uh, more obvious to us as we're as we're going so is tdd less about uh how to test your code and more about how to design it absolutely yep bingo <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, in fact some people call it uh, test-driven design the other thing I wanted to say is that simpler is not always shorter. Um, no. it's, it, you know, simplicity isn't just about like taking 12, 20 lines of code and turning them into two lines of code. Um, a simple you, that's can be, pearl. yeah, it, it can be about like that, that openness or that transparency. So think about certainly what happened to me. And I think it happened to a lot of people when we got lambdas, I started to use algorithm. Now, it's not just because function pointers are pain in the, you know, to declare. Uh, it was also that, like, then you had to give it a name, and then where was it? And it was somewhere else in some other file. And, and it was really hard to read the names of these predicates. And now when you can stick a little lambda in there as the predicate, it's transparent. If the lambda is, like, something like, you know, status equals unshipped, I don't need a function for that. And it's actually simpler to have that predicate in there as a lambda. And that's simpler code, because I guess, uh, to stick to your coupling example, Phil, I'm not coupled over to the definition of the function or what have you. One of the weird things about lambdas is that that's what it does. It unlocks, it unlocks something that's been in the standard for a long time, which is the STL. And the irony of, of course, is that it's not giving us anything we couldn't have already done. It's just sugar, right? It's just syntactical sugar 
or in fact, it's even explained that way in the standards. Is what here's what this lambda declaration does. It makes a function object of the type that you just specified, which you could go off and do on your own. But the fact that you don't have to name it, which is an important thing, and the fact that it's in context, the the, the contextualness of it is, I think, uh, is something that makes it really powerful. I I know one of the things that Scott Myers recommends about lambdas is he said they should be contextual, but also um, short and clear. And I've always looked at that and said, unlike other functions where we don't want them to be short and clear, is that what you're saying, mm-hmm. Scott? <laughs> um, about about that, um, I think that some lambdas are good and some should be packed off into functions. And like, how do you know how short it should be or how clear it should be? Like you're saying, everything should be short and clear, but there are lambdas that are definitely not at the right place. So it makes me think about another definition of complexity, another than coupling, which is clearly uh, very true. But there's, I think, another one, which is levels of abstraction. And for me, um, simplicity comes down to... I mean, a lot of it comes down to respecting levels of abstraction. And by a level of abstraction, I mean something that describes what it does um, as opposed to how it does it. Like like a lower level would be how to do it. Like you've got a function, like the name of the function is at a certain level, and it calls other functions which are at a lower level of abstraction because that's how you do that first function. And so I think for a given context, like like the body of a function, for example, what you want is a consistent, a consistent level of abstraction. So when you use an STL algorithm and you try to decide whether you should use a lambda or a function pointer or functor or whatever, then the one way to decide to do a lambda or something else is to think about whether the content of the lambda is at the same level of abstraction of what's surrounding the call to the STL algorithm. If it is, then that's fine to have a lambda, even if it's long, even if it's more than one statement or two statements. And and uh, on the opposite, if it's at a lower level, then you don't want to see it, even if it's just one return, whatever. You're saying in that situation, it makes sense to have that be a separate function object that you instantiate. Yeah, exactly. One that has a name that where the name is telling you, the name is hiding the abstraction for you. So the name is saying, this is what it does. And within the context of the function you're calling, uh, calling it from, the that that's too low a, a level of abstraction. That's the point, because one point of a function is to rise the level of abstraction, and that makes me makes me think of a an idea that I heard from Tony Van Eert uh, is how many times do you have to re- see the same piece of code to ship it off to a function. And when he asked me that question, I said, I don't know, like two or three. And his opinion is just one. If you see that one time and that's a unit and that's sitting there, then you should pack it off somewhere to a function. And that really shows that a function is about raising extraction because replace a chunk of code, even if it's small, by a name which describes what what it represents. So... Yeah, when you're doing an STL algorithm, if your predicate or whatever function you're sending to the algorithm doesn't show what it does with its body, then you should replace it with a name and and refrain from using an an anonymous lambda. Now, it doesn't prevent you from using a lambda at all because you can 
make a function, a separate function with a name that returns a lambda, that you don't have to go through the trouble of writing a class with a public and private and, and, and a constructor and all that kind of things we used to do in C++ 98. So I have done that. I, I had some examples where the predicate is, these are literally like vectors of integers. And so the predicate was just checking to see if they were odd or not. Mm -hmm. um, and you can just make a local variable, like auto is odd equals the lambda, and then pass just that. Just to give it a name. Just, yeah. just as a reason to give it a name, if people don't, it depends who your audience is. You know, in some audiences, when they see you're doing, you know, mod two, um, and you're comparing it to zero or what have you, and then there's the whole, if you can say is equal to one, it messes up on negative numbers. They get caught up in that, and they forget about the first half of the line of the code where you're calling find or whatever you find if. Uh, a thousand years ago in another life, I was teaching D-based programming, I think it was. And uh, the example was, we're going to give everyone a 10% raise. So we're going to take their salaries, multiply them by 1.1, and then save them back. And half the class was like, why are you multiplying by 1.1? What has that got to do with a 10% raise? And we like mm. had to go do 15 minutes on percentages. <laughs> right. But, you know, like that audience was not mathematically... Uh, literate. These were people who were being retrained as programmers from from uh, like ditch diggers and things, and and uh, this was something no one had ever taught them before. And so I think it's obvious that we're doing the mod two to figure out if it's odd or not. But if that's not obvious, then yeah, you should stick it in a thing with a name because then you've explained it. So I think one of the one of the things about C plus plus is that uh, it it allows us to add levels of abstractions without paying for it at runtime, mm -hmm. and that's. That's not true of all languages. For some languages, if you said, well, uh, I'm going to break up this function into a whole series of functions that call each other, uh, people might say, yeah, but this is in a performance area, right. and, and all those function calls are not doing us any good, whereas in the C++ world, we'd say, who cares? The compiler's going to uh, roll this all together, assuming we make them in line and all the kinds of things that we can do. Constexper. Constexper, <laughs> that's right. Um, and I think that's that's one of the... One of the things is uh, getting the level of, levels of abstraction right. Um, and in fact, when we when I fall into the trap of gold plating, it's probably because I'm getting too many levels of abstraction. And I'm saying, well, let's abstract away that sales tax is calculated because it might not be just multiplied by a factor. It may be that there's a, a range where up until $100, there's one factor. In it, isn't it? So let's make a whole, you know, let's over-engineer a whole way of how we're going to calculate the sales tax when in fact... You know, just multiplying by a fixed amount is almost certainly going to be safe. But, you know, that's the way, because I can think about that. And if I can think about it, then I can wrap code around it and make it more complicated. <laughs> but, but it's always judgment, you know. So if something is overdue, you know, because its due date is before now, um, do I need a function called is overdue or can I just compare the due date to now? Well, part of that comes from, again, what you expect other people to know, but also how did you figure out the due date? You know, is it a property or function you're calling with the name due date? Hmm. Or is it something harder to understand? Um, or maybe is it you possible wanna... that it's not overdue if that falls on the Friday before weekend, and so it's not <laughs> overdue until Monday? Uh, exactly, that's how right? American, the American, the IRS works that way, right? You, you, right. Uh, uh, and so suddenly, yeah, we probably should have a function called is overdue. That, and now it needs to know not just about the day of the week, but about holidays. <laughs> and that's going to be read out of some persistent store. And and that's, that's, again, back to what we talked about at the very beginning, that organic complexity that kind of grows. 
So it started with a simple date compare, and then it turned into a figuring out the day of the week, and then it turned into looking up holidays in the database, and it's still all sitting in one place, and it should have moved to a function. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a tough choice, really, because that sort of comparison can really uh, pop up everywhere in code. So if from day one you decide not to go for the abstraction, then if you do decide to go for it later, then it's going to be a pain because it's going to be everywhere. Really hard to search for, yes. And how to search for, absolutely, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough choice. Well, there's some value to experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us with gray hair want to believe that. Uh... <laughs> Again, though, um, not a panacea, but this is where I find that uh, TDD really helps. Uh, particularly because you do end up with, with that body of tests that are you know, testing pretty much all of your code. When you do come to, to make these changes later, the, the tests are going to, first of all, um, give you the confidence that making those changes is not going to break anything too much. But they'll also tell you where you, you have broken things because of the, the change itself, as in you, you've changed an interface that you hadn't quite pinned down. Uh, and that's going to break some tests somewhere. And then you think, ah, this is an interface. So I need to mm-hmm. make that a bit more concrete. You know, the, the, the other thing I like about that strategy, Phil, is if you can't come up with a test yourself, if you need the test cases to come from a business person, uh, that's when they reveal the unwritten rule. So they told you before, this is what you do when things are overdue, but they didn't really tell you the definition of overdue and you thought you knew what it meant. But then when you ask them for examples, they start giving you these Friday afternoon examples that are not overdue yet. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Turns out life is more complicated, but they would never have told you because everybody knows, right? We're we're getting a bit off into into testing, which I want to make into a different episode. But, <laughs> but what, what what you're talking about is more the the domain of BDD, behavior driven development, where it is more about the the conversations with the the non technical people, uh, and absolutely, it's um, that that really opens up those uh, those observations. Well, unfortunately. We can't go off into either direction at this point because mm-hmm. I think we're uh, we've just blown. Th- I mean, I was I was just listening to you guys discuss this, and I I think I could I could continue to listen to that for a long time. I wish I wish that was an option for us. Um, instead, we'll just have to uh, make a codicil of the arrangement that we made with Kate, which said that oh, did we say you had to come back on one show? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll have to have Jonathan and Kate back sometime. Um, and maybe we will have them back to talk about uh, testing as opposed to just uh, simplicity. Or maybe, I mean, when we talk about code design, there's about, you know, a, a lot of different ways of looking at it. And they all kind of over, maybe they're all complected together. They all kind of overlap, whether you're talking about things like, you, you know, how it's designed or the reliability or simplicity or, you know, all of these things uh, impinge on each other. But I've cut everybody off. I don't want to. Does anybody have anything last that just had to fit in there before we wish everybody safe coding? Not one thing. Probably some <laughs> things. So I'm not going to pick one now. You're, you're making what? it too complex. <laughs> I think the simple thing to do now would be to take the opportunity to finish the show. All right. We'll do that then. And uh, we'll. I'll. Encourage you to join me in wishing all of our uh, listeners safe coding. So, everybody, until next time, safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Take care.